God. Confidence in the Lord, Yahweh. Verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Trust is confidence. Confidence that those who trust in the Lord are those who have confidence in Yahweh. Confidence that they therefore cannot be moved. They are immovable like the mountain Zion upon which uh, Jerusalem and the temple were built. They'll be there forever. Not just like any mountain is there forever, but like God's mountain, because they will be protected like God protects his own mountain. And therefore, if God is protecting them, then they will stand forever. Indeed, they'll be surrounded forever by the Lord, for as Zion is surrounded by the mountains and the hills around it, so those who trust in Yahweh, those who have their confidence in him, will be surrounded by him and cared for and protected forever by him. Nothing can ultimately destroy Yahweh's people, for he has them surrounded by his protection. Mount Zion wasn't the tallest of the mountains. Uh, The Mount of Olives, for example, overlooks Mount Zion. Indeed, it's surrounded by hills that are taller than it. It's a great mountain, but it is not the tallest of mountains. It's protected by the other mountains around. So there is the image. God's people are going to be protected by God surrounding them. Therefore, we read, the scepter of wickedness, that is the reign, the the scepter is the, the rod that the king holds to show that he is the king, the reign of the kingdoms of evil have no place in God's city. So we read in Verse 3, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. There's no way that Yahweh will allow the reign of wickedness in his land, to rule over his land, the land that he has given to the righteous, that righteousness might dwell there. And so we read in verse 3 that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest in the allotted land of the righteous. It it cannot, they shall not reign there because Yahweh wouldn't let wickedness reign in his allotted appointed land. Yahweh is king and he will brook no rivals. The king of Israel is not his rival but his representative ruling under his appointment. But a foreign king who worships a different god cannot be tolerated in ruling there. But maybe verse 3 is not referring to a foreign king, simply to a wicked king. There are ample ample examples of wicked kings who rule Israel and Judah. Their scepters, the scepter of the wickedness and all that they stand for, it shall not rest in their land. For the land has been allotted to the righteous, and so the wicked will not reign here. This is the land of rest for the people of God. It's not the land of rest for the wicked. God will not allow the wicked to reign over Zion, over Yahweh's people, over Yahweh's land. Now, there can be many reasons why the wicked wouldn't be allowed to rest there. But in this psalm, The reason of verse 3 is given to us in the second half of the verse. Lest 
the righteous be tempted to the ways of the wicked. That's a sad verse, really. For it is saying that the righteous still will not stand unaffected by the sinfulness of wicked, by the temptation to wickedness. It reminds me of that sad verse in Matthew 24, when Jesus predicts the coming of false prophets and he says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. When wickedness rests over a nation, in the time of lawlessness in a culture, it eats into the very bones of the righteous and the love of many will grow cold. It feels that way in our own country at this time. For there are many who would name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the love, the passion for him is very cool. When wickedness reigns in a country, that is what would happen. So God will not allow wickedness to reign in Zion, lest lest the people, the righteous, should grow cold. So the psalmist's confidence in the Lord is assured he won't allow it to happen. He won't allow the reign of wickedness to rest in the land. But this, this assurance, this confidence and trust in God does not lead to inactivity, to doing nothing and letting God, just let go and let God look after it. The Bible is never fatalistic in its acceptance of the sovereignty of God. God won't allow this to happen, therefore I should do something. It's not, God will never let this happen, therefore I don't have to worry about it, I should just let... It's therefore... And what he does is pray. The sovereignty and assurance that he has in God leads to prayer. We know the heart and the mind of God, and so we pray that which he would want to give to us, that he would want to put into effect, that which he wishes, that which he wants. See, there's no point praying against God's will, asking God to help me steal, asking God to help me murder. God has said he doesn't want me to steal, doesn't want me to murder. I can't ask him to help me do those things. But he does want me to love my neighbour, and I find that really difficult. If you knew my neighbour, you would know how hard he finds it to love his neighbour as well. And so we need to pray that we would love our neighbour. We're praying for that which God wants to give us, wishes to give us, and sometimes doesn't give us because we haven't asked. In James chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you ask to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Now, we've got to ask for that which God wishes to give us. There's every point in praying to God to implement his will, asking God to help me fight temptation, to love my neighbour, to defeat God's enemy. These are right things to be asking. It's because the psalmist trusts the Lord that he prays to the Lord, for prayer is simply that. Prayer is trust articulated. It's expressing your faith. It's putting your confidence into words. 
That's what prayer is. Heavenly Father, I know that you love me because you sent your son to die for me, that I may be forgiven. Please forgive me. What am I doing? I'm putting my confidence in God, my trust in God, my faith in God into words. I'm expressing, I'm articulating my confidence. And so he prays in verse 4, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. That's not two different groups of people. In English, we have this word and, which kind of means plus. But it's not two different groups. It's the one and the same. In Hebrew poetry, you often say the same thing in two ways. In fact, in English, we do it. Preachers are always doing it. If you listen to me, I do it frequently. That is, I say the same thing over and again. And I'll express it another way so that you'll hear that I'm just saying the same thing again. Uh, it's easy to be doing this, you see, that actually makes sure that people have communicated and understood, and that's what it is. Those who are good are those who are upright in heart. It's the same people. They are the righteous in the land. That is, they are Yahweh's people. This is not for a moment saying that they are sinless. We know all people are sinful. But there are those who have been forgiven by God, born again, moved by his spirit to seek his ways, and driven or mastered not by the evil one, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he prays for them in the sight of the specter of uh, the scepter of wickedness resting on the land. He prays for the righteous. You will remove the scepter of wickedness because you don't want your righteous people to fall into wickedness. So, Heavenly Father, please do good to those who are upright in heart. And the outcome he expects from his prayer and from the Lord is found in verse 5. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. For sin has this compounding effect upon it, that as we turn our back on the Lord and walk away from him, so we continue to turn our back on the Lord and walk further and further away from him. But remember the prodigal the prodigal son only turns back when he has lost everything. He's lost his money, he's lost his family, of course, he's lost his friends. Only when he is actually reduced to eating with the pigs that he comes to his right mind and turns back to his father and says, well, I'd rather be a slave in my father's house than sit here eating the pig food with the pigs. As long as he is successful... He continues in his walk away from his father. So God's judgment is like that, you see. It leads people away into their own evil. You see it in the second half of Romans chapter 1, where repeatedly we read that God gives them up to do what their evil hearts want to do. That the judgment of God is to let people have their own head. For when sinful people have their own head, they only go into further and further sinfulness to their own destruction. It's like those famous paintings of the rake's progress. It just goes from one stage of bad to the worst to the worst until he winds up in bedlam. But the psalmist prays that as the wicked are led away, as God does good to the good and will not allow the scepter of wickedness to reign in his people, so there would be peace upon Israel. For when God does good to the upright and leads the wicked in their crooked ways, 
the God of peace is re-established. God's peace is re-established in Israel. Now this little psalm is not quoted in the New Testament and yet the mindset of the psalmist is, is clearly there. For Jesus talking to his disciples about the wicked and the upright and God's preservation of his people in the passage of John's gospel is quite like it. Turn with me. We'll come back to this Psalm 126 in a moment, but turn with me to John's Gospel, page 1069. 1069, John chapter 10 it is, 1069, John 10. And we look down at verse 22, John 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Here we see confidence in the Lord again, in both Jesus and his Father. No one can snatch us from Jesus' hands. No one can snatch us from the Father's hand. This is not self-confidence. This is not confidence in ourselves that I would never jump out of the hand of the Lord. For if my salvation is dependent upon me, I can have no assurance of the future. For my capacity for sin knows no end. My capacity for foolishness and stupidity knows no end. If it's relying upon me and my good works, I can never be sure of eternal life. But this is confidence in the Lord, that though I in my folly may want to leave the hand of the Lord, yet he will not let me go. Our confidence that we will stand on the last day before God, pure and spotless, washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, lies in him, not in us. No one can and will snatch us from his hands. And so the psalmist, you see, has his confidence in the Lord. The Lord will protect his people. He will not allow wickedness to reign in his place because he's protecting his people. He doesn't want his people to be taken away by wickedness. And so he will not allow it. They shall not reign forever in his place. For we are protected by him, guarded by him, shielded by him. Like the hills around Zion shield and protect Zion, so the Lord is around us protecting us and shielding us. It's a great psalm to remind us to keep our confidence in him and not in ourselves. Come back to then Psalm 126. And learn some more lessons from the psalmist. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, 
We were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Well, it's again a very little psalm that falls into two parts. The restoration in the past and the restoration in the future. A psalm that is looking backward and looking forward. Verses 1 to 3 is about the restoration in the past. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who were in a dream that our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. This, you see, is the Lord's work he's talking about. He and he alone could restore the fortunes of Zion. The psalmist had a particular moment in history in mind, but he doesn't tell us what that moment is, so we don't really know. I mean, it could be the restoration after the Babylonian captivity, when suddenly and miraculously the Persian Empire came into effect and they sent the captives back to restart the nation and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. It was an extraordinary thing. The the fall of Babylon was kind of like the fall of the Berlin Wall. For, For 70, 80 years, the 20th century was dominated by the Russian communist takeover and power. Since the First World War, right through to the rest of the century, there was this tension that was held with the, the Eastern Bloc. And after the Second World War, it's, it was Berlin was the line that drew. But then we saw suddenly, unexpectedly, the whole of that kind of Eastern Bloc imploding in an economic collapse, which freed up Poland, freed up the Lithuania and Estonia and Latvia, freed up Germany and was able to be reunited and that dreadful wall got pulled down. But it was a, it was a sudden climactic conclusion to that whole way of thinking, wasn't it? it? It came down in just seemingly a couple of weeks, having been standing for so long. Well, the Babylonian captivity was like that. Babylon conquered the world. It was the great empire of the world, but it actually only lasted 70 years. And then it collapsed as the Persian Median Empire expanded and conquered it. And to the surprise of the slaves, the Jewish slaves in Babylon, they were sent home, sent home with money to rebuild their temple, sent home with money to rebuild their city. They were still under Persian rule, but it was... It was so exciting. It was so unexpected, although if they'd listened to Jeremiah, if they'd listened to Ezekiel, they shouldn't have been unexpected because they had been told. And maybe that's what he has in mind here. You know, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those in a dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy. And and they said among the nations, the Lord's done a great thing for them. But it may be some other restoration he has in mind. I mean, you could think of the restoration in the Assyrian time, a couple of hundred years before that, in 705, when Sennacherib came down and bottled up King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, besieged the city of Jerusalem. All the other towns had been conquered by the Assyrians. 
The whole place had been laid a waste. The only thing left was Jerusalem and Hezekiah, and the people were slowly starving in the city when suddenly, inexplicably, the Assyrians went home. Uh, they had one explanation, the Greek Herodotus had another explanation, the, the Jewish Bible has another explanation, but all agree, suddenly the Assyrians went home and the people were freed and were liberated. Maybe that's what he's talking of here, when the Lord restored the fortunes. There are many times, you see, some that we know of it, there'll be others we don't know of that the psalmist may have in mind, but Whatever the occasion or event, the psalmist sees the hand of the Lord in it. Not only in the topic sentence in verse 1, but also in the repeated statement of the nations. The Lord has done great things for them. And further with his summary in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. For what he is recounting in this is not only the Lord's work but the, 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 of restoration, but our response to it. I mean, it's his response. But it wasn't his alone, it was their response, our response, Israel's response. We were like those in a dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. We, verse 3, we were glad. The joy of God's people is to see the hand of the Lord at work fulfilling his promises, bringing salvation to his people. It was more than we now lived with restored fortunes, it was the Lord was at work restoring the fortunes of Zion. It is indeed a great joy when we see God at work. When we see God at work in the salvation of an individual can be the case. I read a book on Islam just the other day written by an ex-Muslim who recounts his conversion and recounts going to the pharmacist's shop where a pharmacist had led him a Bible that he read and through the reading of the, reading of the Bible he'd become a Christian. And he went back and told her. She closed the shop. She rang her husband. She got him to come over. The joy was overwhelming. He was astonished at how excited and pleased she was at the, the saving of one. There's joy in heaven for one who returns. When the restoration happens to the people of God, there is joy. And the nation's response, not just the nation Israel, but the other nations, they, it was to see the Lord at work. For always God's people were to live God's way in front of all the nations. That all the world would see the greatness of Yahweh. The God of Israel was greater than any other God and was to be seen in the way in which they lived, in the righteousness with which they lived. It was to be seen in the, the, the wisdom of their law. It was to be seen in the way in which God rescued his people over and over again. And the way Yahweh restored the fortunes of Zion, the nations saw the work of the Lord and said, Yahweh's done a great work for them. But with the knowledge of Yahweh's restoration in the past, the psalmist now turns to restoration in the future. See, Christianity, like Judaism before it, always looks to the past in order to know what to expect in the future so that we will know how to live in the present. We are people who are looking back in order to look forward to know how to look now where we are. And so the psalmist remembers what God did in the past, how he brought such joy and happiness to them, 
But now life is not full of joy. It's not full of happiness. Now life is not full of the restored fortunes of Zion. So the psalmist turns to the Lord to request once more that he will restore the fortunes. Pick it up, verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Uh, He knows that it's the Lord's work. We can plant, we can sow, we can water, we can wait. But it's the Lord who gives the growth. The harvest is always in the end his harvest. We are like the streams of the Negev. The Negev is the desert. It's a funny word. Um, It's a specific desert, but it's the desert. And we Australians shouldn't need much to understand it. For the inhospitable desert of central Australia is such a barren wasteland until the rains come. Once every five years or whenever it is. And then suddenly the whole place turns green. Overnight things start to grow. Suddenly the desert springs into life. Even if the rains fall hundreds of miles away up country, once the streams come down, the place is transformed. Lake Eyre is full of water. And it's, it's exciting. And not only is it full of water, but the, the birds are there. Not only the birds are there, but the fish are there. And I always wonder where they've come from. You know, they've been lying under the ground waiting for the mud to give them up again or something. But it is an extraordinary burst of life that happens. Well, Israel was on the edge of the desert. It understood the streams of the Negev. They were dry most of the time and barren most of the time. But then suddenly the Lord would bring life again. And so the psalmist is looking at the the poverty and the drought of the land of the desert, praying that that God would restore and replenish, just like he does the streams of the Negev. But praying doesn't mean inactivity. For while we pray... We are sowing in tears. In tears because of the drought and the hardness of life, because of the fears and uncertainties. Without the Lord blessing our endeavours, life has no chance. And so he's weeping tears, not weeping, he's not going out sowing with joy. But under the good hand of God, when he restores our fortunes, when he sends the waters down the rivers of the Negev, we can reap with joy. And this is the expectation, this is the hope, this is the prayer of the psalmist. This is what he's looking forward to. This is what keeps him going. For life without hope is hard to live. But the hope of God blessing our endeavours. We may go out in tears, weeping and sorrowing, but we're looking forward to coming home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves of harvest, from which that last phrase gave rise to a very famous American hymn in the 19th century, Bringing in the Sheaves. I won't sing it for you because I have a heavy cold. That's the only reason I'm not singing it for you, other than I'm having mercy upon you. Again, this psalm is not quoted in the New Testament, but the concept of the Christian farmer, the concept of God blessing our endeavours and our labours, is certainly the concept of waiting for the harvest to come and joy is all there. Let me show it to you in three passages quickly. 2 Timothy, page 1187, 1187. 
1187 to Timothy, talking of Christian ministry. Timothy is invited by Paul to come into suffering. Paul is in prison at the time. And so in chapter 2, he says to Timothy, chapter 2, he says, why can't I find it? Um, Verse 3, it's up the top of page 1187, verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's the hard-working farmer. Christian ministry is like hard work. And it's the hard-working farmer that God, you can reasonably expect, will bless. The lazy farmer tends not to get much of a crop. The hard-working farmer is the one whom God will bless. But come back. It's more than just Christian ministry. Come back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, page 1154. 1154, 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, where he's talking about generosity and giving to those in need, giving to those who minister the gospel, but it's collecting up for the people who are impoverished because of the drought in Palestine. 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, and I'm picking up verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God gives to us that we may give generously to others. And as we give generously, so we reap generously. As we give in a stinginess of heart and mind, so we reap in stinginess. But do not be afraid of being generous, because our God loves a cheerful giver, and our God gives us generously so that we can be generous. And the third and last passage I draw your attention to is in Galatians, just a few pages to the right, Galatians, page 1162, the last passage with which we conclude. Galatians 6, page 1162. The one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. Verse 7, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let's not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's a lovely little passage, isn't it? It's not all automatic. What you sow is what you reap because God is involved between those two things. But because God is involved in those two things, what we sow, we sow with hope and expectation that God will bless our endeavours and we will reap a harvest 
thirty-fold, sixty-fold, a hundred-fold, as Jesus spoke in the parable of the sower, that we will reap great, reap greatly, because our God blesses our endeavours, and so God is not mocked. What you sow will be what you reap, and we may sow with great sorrow in our hearts and great difficulties and problems we're under. But with God, we will bring in the sheaves. With God, the blessing can be abundant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for His death, sown for us, that could come in that resurrection, that great harvest that has brought in so many millions of people. And we pray, Father, that we may so live. Generously in heart and mind, with our lives and with our time, with our love and our affection, with our giving and our caring for others, that you would bless our endeavours, Father, to great reward, that through us great righteousness might take place, that many people would know the Lord Jesus, and many would glorify you and rejoice, because you indeed are God of gods and Lord of lords. And we pray for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.